Hey everybody, welcome to the greatest podcast in American history, aka Dang Dude, What the Heck is Wrong with America. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer. Today, we're going to be talking about the labor movement and how the labor movement reacted to the Industrial Revolution. So we're moving off of those last couple podcasts where we talked about the Industrial Revolution in the North, the Industrial Revolution in the South, in the West, and now we'll be looking at how the workers reacted to the Industrial Revolution. So we've talked a lot about the ways in which the steel industry was built up, in which mega farm, bonanza farms were built up out West, industrial farming, textile, tobacco industry in the South, and now we're going to be looking at what those workers thought of all what was going on. So we're going to be looking at four big topics here today. One is sort of post-Civil War labor conditions, right? So what did actual day-to-day work look like in these factories? We're going to look at early unions, right? So some of these early labor formations, talking about some radical labor groups, and then a couple of major sort of labor battles, label uh, labor crack, like conflicts between labor and capital. A couple big questions here for us in this podcast. Episode one, why did an American labor movement develop during the Industrial Revolution? So what were the conditions for the development of these sort of labor groups? What were some of their successes? What were some of their failures? And then was this movement successful, right? You might hear some of this being called, if you ever read a book called The Labor Question, right? The Labor Question in the United States. People all don't often define that what that labor question actually is. But basically, it says what is to be done with the workers? Who does the work? Who reaps the benefits of the Industrial Revolution? And sort of what are the terms of that work? So before we get into all of that, we're going to talk about Lucy Parsons. Lucy Parsons, uh, Chicago sort of labor legend. I know I always mention Chicago, but this is where I live. So I like a little put a little Chicago history into these podcasts. Labor part Lucy Parsons, huge, huge huge person in the labor movement during this time. Actually, if you go up onto Kedzie, right across from the Blue Line station, that is the uh, the street is named Honorary Lucy Parsons Street. There's also Lucy Gonzalez Parsons Apartments out there as well. So Lucy Parsons, she was a leading anarchist in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. She was married to Albert Parsons, who was one of the Haymarket Eight, these people who we're going to talk about a little bit later. She went around the world trying to raise support for these Haymarket Eight to get money for them and also just to support socialism and anarchism. As a result of these tours and her other labor work, she became an internationally known labor leader, labor activist, was an honored guest at the founding of the IWW. For most of her life, she lived in Chicago, died in 1940. She was born into this into slavery. Her parentage is sort of a little bit up for debate. A lot of stuff about her was lost. Her documentation, a lot of her like own writing was lost in a fire that took her house after she died. Uh, but she was born into slavery, most likely as the, the, the daughter of her slave owner and the mother of one of the slave owners and uh, slaves. This is one quote uh, from her, right? You can hear sort of her fiery speech. She says, spies, Parsons, Ingle, Ling, Fisher, you are not dead. So long as a child lisps for liberty, your names are sweet. The future will bless the hand that threw the bomb. When liberty comes to crown the world, the names of our martyrs will be among the brightest jewels in her crown. So this is the sort of the speech, right? Praising people who were throwing bombs, talking about martyrs, right? This is the type of speech she was doing. She was this very, very, very cool person, Lucy Parsons. 
big leader in sort of the anarchist space in the United States. She was a black woman married to a white man, which for the time was very controversial. Newspapers would write about it all the time, right? Saying that she, you know, their marriage was was bad, doing all talking all this like nonsense about her. She actually often went by Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, claiming Hispanic heritage. There's no real historical record of that, and it's most likely not true, but it might have sort of been to try to cut some of that off. Okay, so moving on from Lucy Parsons here, uh, we're going to talk about some pre-Civil War labor organizations. So we talked about with the Industrial Revolution podcast, right, how these urban factories were starting to replace smaller water-powered shops, especially in the North, right? Prior to, you know, the Civil War and to the Second Industrial Revolution, all these small factories have been very small, powered by water mills, basically. But now they're going bigger, right, becoming these steam, coal, power uh, industrial factories. And with the growth of these bigger factories in the 1830s and 1840s, you get what are called working men's parties that start to enter city politics. They were sort of the first labor parties in the United States. It's not really, you shouldn't think of them as unions, right? They were more political parties than they were sort of organizing for labor, but they were sort of formed by trade union members, right? People who had been in these smaller trade unions trying to move into politics. Uh, Some of the first Actual unions and first, like, striking people you get are the Lowell Mill girls, Lowell Mill women, uh, who worked in Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, in these sort of textile mills, right? They were some of the first to attempt strikes in a factory setting. They weren't successful, but they became sort of huge cultural influence for later unions. So post-Civil War, labor conditions are pretty bad, right? You get mechanization and urbanization all lead to lower wages. It's more people working all at once. It's consistent to be less skilled. It certainly it requires a lot of skill to work in these places, but sort of the, the argument from owners is that it's less skilled and there's you know increasing competition for these jobs, right? You get these new people moving into the United States, women and children all entering the workforce, leading to lower wages as well with increased competition. And so by not and one thing to know, right, children were working a lot at this time. By 1910, 25% of American children were employed full-time, right? A quarter of every child in America was working a full-time job. That's wild to think about now. Other things, um, there were some positive changes for workers. The workday was getting shorter, largely due to worker resistance, all due to worker resistance. In 1865, the average workday was about 12 hours. By 1880, the average workday was 10 hours. Uh, Workers were still wanting more, right? They wanted an eight-hour workday. That was sort of the big, big goal around the time of the 1880s, one of the things Lucy Parsons was fighting for. But not everything was positive, right? You have wages were very low, as I mentioned, for workers. There's lots of competitions for these jobs. There's also sort of these widespread ideas of the morality of work, Right, we talked about that a couple of podcasts ago. This idea of you know Horatio Horatio Alger and his Ragged Dick books, Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, saying you know as long as you just work and work hard, you'll be all right. That wasn't the case for millions of people, obviously, but that sort of idea was very much present. In 1890, just some more numbers for you: the average annual income for a family of four was $380. And in 1890, the subsistence level for a family of four was $530, right? So a lot of people were making way less than they needed to actually survive, let alone live a good life, a life that they've been promised 
through these ideas of the morality of work. People didn't have insurance. There was no paid vacation, no job security, no workers' compensation. If you got injured, that basically meant you lost your job, right? Uh, you and you just couldn't work, and you couldn't have any. You didn't have any money. You couldn't take any paid vacations. People were working seven day weeks, right? Maybe they got off for a Sunday. Maybe they got off for Christmas. But other than that. It was really bad. So just sort of to sum it up, lots of workers were poor, hungry, and very angry about that fact. They've been promised these sort of riches coming to the United States, and they actually wanted a shot at those. So what do people do? Well, they went on strike. One of the first big major labor conflicts, major labor uh, in the United States, was the railroad strike of 1877. This is when the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad announced a second round of wage cuts, the second round of wage cuts in eight months, and this sort of precipitated the strike, right? Already, workers had seen their wage wages cut, and then eight months later, there was another round of cuts. So people already not making that much money saw their wages cut twice in a year, and this started the strike on July 16th, 1877. Workers froze all train traffic, all b and train traffic. The strike spread across the country and violence soon erupted because of it. Government intervention, the government intervened in this and that sort of polarized both sides of the conflict and this sort of question became a big question in labor relations in the United States, right? Should the government intervene in conflicts between labor and capital? Is that the government's job to stop strikes or are strikes purely an affair between the worker and the person who hired them. This was a big question. The This railroad strike of 1877 ended when President Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes sent in federal troops to end the strike, right, to force the workers to go back to work. He claimed, the president Hayes did, that it was a matter of public safety, right, that this violence that had broken out needed to be ended. One thing to know about this is that in 1877, when Rutherford B. Hayes first heard about the strike, he was eating on the dining car of the B&O Railroad with the president of that railroad. The president told him to use the National Guard to stop the strike, and President Rutherford B. Hayes did. So you can see the deep connections between these railroad leaders and the federal state at the time. That's no coincidence, right, that Hayes sent in the federal troops to stop this railroad and to interfere in this strike when he was so close to the railroad leaders. So sort of some of the results of the railroad strike of 1877, the business, the side of capital really wins this strike. The end of the strike saw increased union busting from railroads and other industries. They weren't afraid to bust these unions anymore, right? They saw that the government was probably going to be on their side no matter what they did. So they started busting and trying to bust unions that have been growing up all across the United States. They use things like blacklists and yellow dog contracts. Blacklists, basically, if you know a union leader was found out, uh, they got put on one of these blacklists and then no one in that industry would hire them. Yellow dog contracts said that I won't join a union, made it a condition of being hired that you wouldn't join a union. Companies also began using groups like the Pinkertons to spy on labor groups and to 
use them as strike breakers. The Pinkertons are actually sort of a very, a very interesting group. They're still around today. They recently got back into the news, still doing sort of awful stuff. Uh, they're also the bad guys in Red Dead Redemption 2, if you've ever played that. But they started out as a spy agency during the Civil War, spying for the Union on the South. The uh, they be- They became a detective agency after that. They, the, the head of the Pinkerton, like the first guy, William Pinkerton, became famous because he supposedly saved Abraham Lincoln's life by stopping an assassination attempt on him. And they so he started a detective agency. It's Don't think of it as, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes sort of guy or even a P.I. They were much more, it's much it's think of them as sort of a private militia, right? Especially during this 1877 time, it was just a lot of sort of lower middle class guys being used to, to break up strikes, given guns and, and sent in there. Some people did sort of do like actual spying, right? They would pretend to be workers and go to union halls and collect information. But a lot of times there's sort of brute force Work. There wasn't sort of that, you know, getting clues stuff going on. One of the big labor unions at this time was the Knights of Labor. So this, they were not the guys who went on strike during the B&L Railroad strike, but they were the sort of big, big labor group at the time. They were started in 1869 by a Philadelphia tailor named Uriah Stevens. Don't get in the name Uriah anymore. Uh, maybe we should. And they were around for a while. They weren't all that big. They were, you know, this this concern, but by 1879, about 10 years after they started, they were brought to national prominence by their new leader, Terence V. Powderly, who was the big leader of the Knights of Labor, sort of their most famous leader, and brought them to national prominence. And what's interesting about the Knights of Labor is that in the 1880s, they accepted basically any worker, Right. They became this huge organization because of it. They weren't limited to a a trade or a craft. Right. Trade unions, craft unions before had been, well, if you're a wheelwright and only if you're a wheelwright, you can join our union. Or if you're a carpenter and only if you're a carpenter, you can join our union. But the Knights of Labor were like, no, anybody carpenter, wheelwright, railroad guy, train car worker, whatever, you can join our union. Because of this, though, they had some internal issues. It's hard to organize that many workers effectively under a single national union, right? Especially during this time, even with the train system, it takes time for messages to get from one place to another. So it's really hard to organize all across the country. It is possible, but it's hard. Also, different unions have different needs, right? Workers in one industry have different requests, different wants than workers in a different industry, and sometimes it's hard to make those work together. The way it was organized, really, was that Terrence Powderly was at the top, sort of the head guy, and then beneath him were the heads of different types of unions. So you had a head of wheel workers unions, a head of, you know, whatever union, of shop workers unions, et cetera, et cetera, and they're all sort of reported to Stevens and, and worked together in that way. They also ended up falling apart pretty quickly in the 1860s, in the 1880s. There was something called the Haymarket Affair, which we'll talk about a little later. And there's a huge fallout from that, thanks to connections that they had to the anarchists in the Haymarket Affair. They were able to hang on for a little bit of time after that. But after 1887, they were basically irrelevant. But a group, another group sort of stepped up and took their place, basically, as the big labor group in the United States. And that was the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. 
if you've heard of the AFL-CIO, which is around today, the AFL is that AFL. They were founded in 1881 by Samuel Gompers. They were sort of started by disaffected members of the Knights of Labor. So they were like the Knights of Labor guys who didn't see them as being effective, didn't see them as really working, started a new union. And they quickly surpassed the KOL in terms of size and influence, especially after the Haymarket riot. So the AFL was different than sort of these trade and craft unions and also different than the Knights of Labor. They were much more moderate than the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor accepted socialists, accepted radicals, even accepted some non-white members. But the, the AFL was explicitly anti-socialist, explicitly anti-anarchist. It was very much a looser confederation of craft unions, right? So where the Knights of Labor was very much a strict sort of Knights of Labor thing. The AFL was like, well, you guys are under the AFL banner, but you're largely operating as your own union. And they explicitly rejected quote-unquote unskilled labor, right? So it was people who had a trade, people who had a craft, people who had a quote-unquote skill. I mean, obviously now we know that there's no really, there's no such thing as unskilled labor, but they sort of, they made that distinction and they did have some successes. In 1890, the Cigar Makers Union, which was an AFL union, uh, fought for and won the eight-hour workday. They were quickly followed by a printer's union, by granite cutter's union, by coal miner unions. And by the 1890s, on because of those wins, they had replaced the Knights of Labor as the most important labor group in the United States. And they would remain the most important labor group in the United States for a long time. But you don't just you don't just see these moderate groups emerge. You also see more radical groups, more radical individuals emerge fighting for more stuff than the AFL was willing to fight for. A lot of people didn't think that just the eight-hour workday was enough, right? They wanted more. They wanted to fight for change at the ballot box, right? So they wanted labor leaders to get elected president in Congress, and then others wanted more radical, wanted more revolutionary political change. People like Emma Goldman, people like Big Bill Haywood, right, wanted, you know, anarchy, uh, industrial syndicalism, right? They wanted communism or socialism uh, at the time. They were much more politically radical than the AFL was. Samuel Gomper is very much against this, right? He thought that winnings, winning sort of individual concessions from individual owners was the best way forward for labor, the best strategy for labor, right? He says you can't do these big, massive political changes, you know, big revolution of all the United States. You have to go small and start small on the individual level. While people like Emma Goldman and people Haywood said, no, you have to go big right away. One of these important radical leaders was Eugene V. Debs. He was the leader of the American Socialist Party, which was formed in 1901. Big, big guy. He was ahead of one of these guys known as the, the Sewer Socialists. The American Socialist Party had these Sewer Socialists elected. Victor Berger, Mayor London, they were in Milwaukee mostly, right? And they were known as Sewer Socialists because they basically they ran on the platform of fixing the sewers in Milwaukee, and they did so, making it a much better sort of living situation for people in Milwaukee. They saw some, the, the American Socialist Party and the Sewer Socialists saw some election successes, but they were mostly at the local level, right? You do have some people who get elected and go into Congress, but it's mostly sort of local mayors and 
some like state Congress people. So you also, Debs, something to know about Debs. Uh, he ran for office five times between 1900 and 1916. The most, he got 6% of the vote in 1912, right? So a pretty good amount of the vote in 1912. In 1916, he ran from jail and got 3.4% of the vote. Uh, was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. And he's actually, he died in Elmhurst, Illinois and is buried uh, out there as well. He died as sort of a result of, of his jail time. And we'll talk a little bit more about Debs uh, later. Another sort of big radical leader uh, is Emma Goldman, right? We'll talk about Emma Goldman when we talk about the Homestead strike. But one of her, her famous quote uh, is, if I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution. Emma Goldman was uh, the, probably the most famous anarchist of the time, eventually went to Russia after the revolution, and she was jailed in the United States. You also have people like the IWW, the sort of big radical uh, labor union at the time, probably the most famous of the radical labor unions, but also sort of the least effective. Their big changes were cultural changes, not as much uh, actual sort of winning political uh, stuff and winning economic stuff for their workers. They were founded in 1905 in Chicago, right here in Chicago, where this is being recorded. That founding was attended by labor luminaries like Eugene Debs, like Lucy Parsons, like Big Bill Haywood, Mother Jones, and other people. They were largely mining and also some timber unions and then a few unions out east, but large concentrated in the West and in the Northwest. They wanted something called anarcho-syndicalism, which is sort of basically that the, the big political union, the big political unit would be a the union, right? So it wouldn't be sort of the state or even the city, but the unions would sort of lead the politics. They're mostly known for the, their striking and their, their sabotage efforts. They were big proponents of dynamite, the uses of dynamite in strikes, Sometimes that's actually sort of a little built up, right? A lot of their big Bill Haywood would go on and on about dynamite all the time. And some of the other IWW leaders would talk about dynamite. They did use it. I don't want to say that they didn't use it, but they talked about it a lot more than they actually did use it. But it became a sort of in a very effective political tool against them, right? People didn't like that resorting to violence that they talked about all the time. It also is there was lots of violence committed against the IWW. One of their leaders, Frank Little, was lynched in Butte, Montana, right? Killed for his political beliefs. Big Bill Haywood was charged and then acquitted of murder. Uh, he didn't do it. He ended up fleeing to the Soviet Union post-World War One. You also get other IWW people out in Montana, out in Idaho, out in Washington, in the Centralia Massacre, uh, being jailed and lynched for their supposed efforts to sort of kill people in town or to run strikes. So lots of violence against these radical labor leaders as well. So some we're going to talk about a couple major sort of labor conflicts here. One, we're going to talk about the Haymarket Affair, the Haymarket Riot. We're talking about the Homestead Strike, and we'll talk about the Pullman Railroad Strike. So the Haymarket Strike took place in 1886. The 1870s and the 1880s were very much a time of labor radicalism, right? People fighting for big, big ideas, big, big socialism ideas, big anarchy ideas, wanting a lot of new changes. Haymarket was one aspect of that. And I, I need to make clear here, I don't want to say that all labor people were socialists or anything like that. It was They were very much the minority. But there were, this was a time where you see union members sort of embracing in 
some aspects, these more radical demands than they do now, right? But still very much the, the minority, even if it's a much sort of bigger minority than most people want to see it. So at this time, you see anarchists, labor organizers, union members, often one in the same, and obviously not always. So the Haymarket strike happened in 1886, but as a lot of these things has roots farther in the past. One thing to note, an earlier strike in Chicago in 1885 had seen bystanders clubbed by policemen. Policemen, so there's already some sort of angst and anger in the city over this. Unemployment was up in 1886. Workers were agitated. And on May 1st, 1886, labor leaders called for a general strike. May 1st is May Day, this big labor holiday. And thousands of these sort of general strikes took place across the country. The big goal of these strikes was to get the eight-hour work day, right? This whole slogan of eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest, that was the big slogan, right? I'll work for eight hours, I'll sleep for eight hours, then I get eight hours to myself. That was sort of the big goal of these general strikes. In Chicago, sort of these strikes continued after May 1st. On May 3rd, what the police called a riot, but what you know, laborers called a protest, took place at the McCormick Reaper Works in Chicago. So in Chicago, they made the reapers farm equipment, right? They, you know, they cut down wheat and stuff, and there was a protest there. Chicago policemen attacked and killed several of the picketing workers, you know, protesting, fighting for the eight-hour workday, and they killed them. So on March 4th, the next day, 1886, anarchists and labor leaders organized a protest of this killing, of this beating of protesters. They organized this protest to take place at Haymarket Square. Haymarket Square, if you're familiar with the UIC, is right near there. It really doesn't exist anymore. It's cut in half by the highway down there, but it's basically where Displans is right now between Lake and Randolph, uh, east of Halstead. So down there in that sort of almost West Loop, Greek Town area. And it's, it was a very small place. And, you know, obviously a day, only organized for a day after, right? So very shortly organized. What happens is they send out this big circular announcing the meeting. It says, you know, attention working men. It's written in English and German. And there was two versions of the what's called the working men's Circular. There's one line difference between them. One says, working men, arm yourselves and appear in full force. And the other gets rid of that. The one that says, arm yourselves, was actually only a few of them were printed and handed out. Most people saw the one that doesn't say, arm yourselves. But the police got a copy of the arm yourselves one. So at this strike, the protest was very small. Not very well attended. The speakers spoke for several hours. It was like raining during a lot of it, so people were going away. Interestingly enough, the mayor at the time actually showed up, talked to the, the police as I, who were watching the meeting, and said, you know, whatever, this is fine. Like, go home. You don't have to be here. Like, nothing's going to happen. He was actually went to a bar after that and was drinking near uh, near the protests. And around eight hours of just sort of these long, long speeches, you know, the rain picked up a little bit, and people started to leave leave. When that happened, for whatever reason, it's still sort of unknown to this day, the police came in and started to forcefully break up the meeting. This meeting hadn't been violent at all. There hadn't really been any 
sort of calls to violence by anyone in the crowd, but the police came and started, you know, beating people, telling them to move out. When this happened, somebody threw a bomb, a homemade bomb, into the crowd of policemen. This bomb killed several policemen, injured more, and then also injured some protests. We don't know who threw the bomb. There have been a couple historians, Timothy Messer Cruz, among them sort of the big one, who says it was this guy named Rudolf Schnaubelt as the likely bomb thrower. That's still mostly guesswork, but probably our best guess for who actually threw the bomb. But we don't know. As a result of this, this bomb throwing, uh, the Chicago police cracked down on the anarchist movement in Chicago. They arrested, uh, eventually ended up arresting and charging eight men for their supposed roles in the bombing. They actually arrested a lot more, including Lucy Parsons, but let some of them go. Those eight people were known as the Haymarket Eight after that. They, one of them, Albert Parsons, or the, the husband of Lucy Parsons, wasn't actually arrested right away. He was able to escape, uh, but then came back and turned himself in, right? Even though he had nothing to do with it, right? None of these eight guys had anything to do with the actual bombing, but he turned himself in sort of as a, a moral protest against this. The, the eight men arrested went on trial. There was no evidence that any of the men had made the bomb or even known that one was going to be thrown, right? There was a bomb maker among the eight, but he had not made that bomb or knew that one was going to be thrown. But despite all this, right, despite that, you know, no evidence actually existed that they had thrown the bomb or killed these policemen, they were found guilty of, quote, inflammatory speeches and publications that incited the bomber, right? So they were charged with basically inciting this bomber to murder, which was a capital charge in Illinois at the time. Seven of the men were condemned to die. One was given 15 years in jail. The only four of them ended up being hung August Spies, Albert Parsons, Albert Fisher, and uh, George Engel, sorry, Adolf Fisher, and George Engel were were hung. Louis Ling was also sentenced to be hung, but he committed suicide the night before. He sort of blew himself up using bomb materials that had been snuck into the jail, sort of in a very dark, uh, comedic way. The bomb didn't really work. It was a poorly made bomb, and he... It was a very long and slow death for him. Uh, Samuel Fielded and Michael Schwab were the other two guys committed, uh, sentenced to death, asked for clemency, and were given life in prison. They were eventually released by a later Illinois government uh, governor. Both all spies, Parsons, Fisher, Engel, and Ling, had been given the opportunity to ask for clemency, and they all refused, stating that they weren't guilty and didn't want to sort of give into the state in that way. Oscar Neve, the eighth guy, was sentenced to 15 years hard labor. As a result of this, they all became sort of international symbols for the labor movement across the world. You see, you know, posters of Les Mateurs de Chicago, right, in France, uh, in some parts of Mexico. May Day is still known as Labor Day and the Haymarket Martyrs Day. So they became international symbols for the labor movement as a result of this. Uh, obviously, there these were all all eight of these guys were members of the Knights of Labor. Sorry, 
some of these guys are members of the Knights of Labor, and that sort of connection ended the Knights of Labor, basically. Lots of people hated the Haymarket 8. They were just anarchists, bomb-throwing anarchists. The, the, the amount of propaganda out there against them turned a lot of people against these anarchists. And so they, they destroyed the Knights of Labor, basically. So as I mentioned, sort of this, this Haymarket became a huge, huge thing in the labor circles. May 1st became known as Labor Day and the Haymarket Martyrs Day. In 1889, there was a statue built honoring the policeman who died in the bombing. This statue has a very funny history in Chicago. It was bombed several times by the Weather Underground. There was also a, not a, not a bus driver, but a, one of these old um, streetcar drivers who ran it over. He says that his hand slipped. You know, we'll, we'll believe him for the moment. Uh, eventually, the, uh, Chicago police, the Chicago police moved it inside a police precinct because Daly, the first Daly, was spending like $60,000 a year trying to protect this statue with full-time uh, guards outside of it. So now it stands in the uh, one of the police precinct stations. Um, but in 1893, there was a monument to the workers erected in Forest Park. It's now a national landmark. It's where Lucy Parsons uh, is buried, as well as some other labor luminaries are buried out there in Forest Park. Uh, in Chicago itself, there's a plaque that marks the spot of the bombing. And in 2004, Chicago commissioned a separate sculpture to commemorate Haymarket. It's on Randolph and Des Plaines there. It's a really weird statue. It sort of doesn't tell you anything about Haymarket. It's sort of like this... Basically like, oh, it happened, and it doesn't really talk about the, the anarchy or the radical politics behind it. That's the Haymarket Affair that happened in 1886. In 1892, there was another massive, hugely important strike going on in the United States, the Homestead Strike. This was the Carnegie Steel Company versus the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, the AAISW. So the Amalgamated wanted to fight. This was basically a fight over wages and contract lengths. Carnegie felt that he had gotten screwed in the last union negotiations and that the contract was much too nice to the workers, so when it was time for a new contract, wanted to fight them tooth and nail so he didn't lose the contract fight again. Carnegie, though, also saw wanted, wanted to be seen across the United States as sort of a pro-labor, pro-union guy. So what he did to sort of keep that image, but still won this strike, was basically he lived in Scotland for all of the strike, saying that he wasn't connected to what was going on there. And he hired this guy, Henry Clay Frick, brought him in as a partner to lead the fight against the union. So Carnegie could say, hey, Frick is this doing all this. I don't really know what's going on. I really love the workers still. Frick, of course, didn't give a hoot about what people saw him like and hated unions, wanted to destroy them. So what he did was he created around the factory, the Homestead factory, where they were making steel and iron and locked it down, uh, called it Fort Frick, built up literal like fortifications around the, built up fortifications around the actual factory, like barbed wire, concrete, all this sort of stuff. And when the union had gone on strike, they had taken over the city. They had sort of lots of support from local leaders. All the local politicians were union guys. They locked down the city and didn't allow any scab workers, replacement workers, to come in. So Frick, to try to break this, hired the Pinkertons to come down on the Monongahela at night, right? He sent them on rafts coming in from places like Chicago and New York and sent basically a private militia down the river to try to break through the union forces. 
was. This led to a massive sort of shootout between the Union and the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were forced to fall back. They lost that fight. Uh, but as a result of this, the state Union was called in, right? Uh, and the state forces... Uh, basically ended the strike, forced the union to allow replacement workers in, letting Frick win the day. There was also an assassination attempt against Frick during all this by this guy named Alexander Berkman, an anarchist who was working with Emma Goldman. Uh, He planned to assassinate Frick. He thought his assassination would sort of lead to an uprising of workers all across the United States. He, this guy, Johann Most, was writing about this called The Propaganda of the Deed. His assassination attempt took place on July 23rd, 1892. He served 14 years in prison for this. He uh, actually shot and stabbed Frick in Frick's office, but failed to kill him. So he was like, he did get, you know, he did do set out what he wanted to do. He just wasn't able to sort of fully complete the job. As a result of this sort of public opinion turned against the union very quickly, even though Berkman was not connected to the union at all. Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were not connected to the union, maybe knew like one union member down there, but in no way did the union sanction this. But despite that sort of public opinion turned against the union very quickly, further leading to the collapse of the strike. So Carnegie really Really won this strike. He was able to force the union to capitulate to all his demands. The union actually stopped existing. The AISW no longer existed in any sort of form in Homestead after this. And Carnegie was able to keep unions out of Homestead until World War II, basically, through these like massive spy networks that he built as a result of the Homestead strike. Our third, the third sort of final strike in this podcast is the Pullman strike. Two years after Homestead in 1894, this is another nationwide railroad strike that happened. This started in Pullman, Illinois, just down south of Chicago, uh, which was a company town, right, built by Pullman for the workers to live there. Workers paid him rent for these houses. He also, you know, provided them with a library and with places to buy food. You know, supposed supposed to be sort of this quote-unquote, like, a place where they could, you know, read books and better themselves, not only as men, but as workers. Problem was that there was a panic of 1893, so this economic panic, and Pullman fired a third of his workers and lowered wages by 25%, so cut what people were earning. But didn't cut the price of rent or cut the price of food in the Pullman town, right? So this place where these workers were meant to live, almost forced to live, forced to buy their food from, the prices were now way, way higher than they had before, and they were making less money. So the workers were quite obviously very pissed off. In response to this, the uh, Eugene Debs, this guy we talked about, formed the American Railway Union, the ARW. He got radicalized by this, right? This is why he eventually ended up becoming a socialist because of this railway strike. And their strike starting in Chicago, starting in Pullman, paralyzed railroad traffic across the country, right? Just as that first B&O railroad strike had, this strike to shut down traffic and commerce across the United States. Pullman, the Pullman Company, wanted to end this strike as quickly as possible. He was losing a lot of money from it, and he didn't want to pay the workers. So what Pullman did was he started attaching mail cars to the trains. 
And in his mind, and what actually happened was that this made the strike a federal concern, right? He wanted to bring in federal troops as quickly as he could, because he had seen what happened at Homestead. He had seen what happened at the BNL Railroad. He's like, okay, once federal troops get involved, the Union's going to lose. And by attaching mail cars, you know, the American Postal, the Postal Service is a federal company, a federal concern. To these cars, now the strike becomes a federal thing, and Grover Cleveland saw it the same way. Once those mail cars got attached, Grover Cleveland sent in the army, and the strike was broken, right? He said the mail has to run. This is a federal issue. The strike is over. Debs was arrested for his involvement in the strike. This wouldn't be his last arrest. He would later get arrested for protesting World War I, uh, but this time in jail, he would become sort of radicalized and become a socialist while he was in jail. There was violence across the country. About 30 people died in Chicago, uh, and as a result of this strike, workers were forced to take a 28% pay cut, so even more of a pay cut than they had prior to the strike. The ARU was disbanded. It was a tremendous loss. So what are some conclusions of this, right? One is that these radical labor movements were moving in fits and starts. There were some successes, right? They did, you know, the the number of hours people worked went down from 12 to 8. Some unions did see wage increases, especially under the AFL, but they faced a lot, a lot, a lot of pushback from these major industries and especially from the state and federal government, right? Lots of resistance to these working class reforms. We didn't talk about it this much in this podcast, but you also see a lot of middle class people very much against uh, these movements by these radical workers, right? They said, oh, you're, you know, if you stop the trains, that's a big problem for me. You can't do that. Or, you know, they see the violence of the Haymarket riot, even if it wasn't the anarchists who got put on trial who did it. And they say, oh, this is all bad. You can't use violence to get what you want. So you see a lot of people pushing back against these radical unions. But you see sort of the, the groundswell and the potential for something that could happen later. So that's today's on uh, the first of sort of these reactions to the Industrial Revolution, right? How these workers are dealing with the Industrial Revolution and the changes caused by it. Next week, we're going to talk about the populists, which were another sort of more agrarian reaction to the Industrial Revolution. So what are farmers doing when it comes to the Industrial Revolution? And I hope you have a great rest of your day.